The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Daniel Thamel discusses Trinitarian theology and our participation in the life of Christ. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fizell. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks for inviting me. The uh, doctrine of the Trinity is something that, for many Christians, is kind of an abstract thing, that it's kind of a, I don't know that much about it, and so what? Anyway, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? I think the Trinity is tremendously relevant to everyday life. It's true that some people, because it seems so abstract or puzzling, Uh, can't get their minds around it, and so they say, well, it's an article of faith, and leave it at that. It's interesting that uh, there was a a member of my congregation that I served in Southern California who was raised in a Unitarian church where, of course, they don't believe in the deity of Christ or of the Holy Spirit. There's simply God out there who made everything. Um, But she said that once she discovered the the joy of, uh, of a Trinitarian understanding of God, she said to me, you know, Pastor, God seems so much more personal to me now. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that, that Jesus Christ is not an emissary of God. He's God himself. And he is God himself condescending to step into our life, to take our humanity upon himself, to experience our pain, our struggles, our temptations, our challenges. And, uh, and through it all, he was faithful to his Father, faithful to his purposes, all the way to dying and rising again for us. So the first thing the Trinity does is it makes God personal to us. Another uh, key aspect of the Trinity is it's really the Trinity um, that preserves for us an understanding of God as love. If God is is simply a a single solitary being uh, for all eternity and then creating a world, how can we understand that God would be loving we can understand that he might decide to, to treat us in a way that we might think is nice, but can God really know what is love if he's a solitary being? But in fact, the Bible says that the, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Now there's a relationship of love, of union and communion between God the Father and God the Son that had been going on for since all eternity past. And then the Holy Spirit is it participates in this in this tri-unity of love that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit experience. So the Trinity is also the foundation for the doctrine of, of the love of God. It's also important because, for the knowledge of God. Uh, if, if, if God had not come to us as man in Christ, then how do we know what God is like? Jesus may have said some inspiring things about God, which we all like, but how do we know he's right? Maybe someone else would come along with a different picture of God and who's to say. But if, in fact, Jesus is God himself come among us to open his heart to us, then God becomes very personal, touchable, believable. So the, the, the Trinity is a, is a very practical teaching. Now, I think sometimes we get, uh, we get caught up in, in concepts that don't help us. I think a good way to talk about the Trinity is as a communion of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
who all share the same reality from all eternity. They're inseparable. You never have one without the other two. But, but it's a communion of, of persons, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's not as if God was two persons, and then at Christmas, suddenly God morphs into three. God always was three. And, and, uh, and God the Son becomes man the first Christmas. So for most people, I mean, you can understand Father, Son, and Spirit, but mm-hmm. the, the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God mm-hmm. is, uh, is troubling. How, how can people be helped with that? Yeah, that, of course, is a, is, is, is a challenging uh, uh, teaching. Uh, we do know that they're one because it's declared many times in Scripture. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He was declaring a oneness between himself and the Father. Uh, at the same time, how can they be one? I think one uh, powerful teaching that the church has, has had for many, many centuries really uh, goes back to, uh, to the uh, Cappadocian uh, divines is the, this doctrine of perichoresis. And all perichoresis is is saying that the three persons of the Trinity uh, interpenetrate each other. They mutually indwell each other. Now, this isn't just some neat idea that some theologian uh, thought up uh, in an ivory tower one day. Jesus himself said, the Father dwells in me and I dwell in the Father. There's a mutual indwelling. And when we understand that the Father, Son, and the Spirit were spiritual, our spirits, we can see how they could interpenetrate each other. They could mutually indwell each other. And in this way, among other things, you not only have the, the oneness, they all interpenetrate the same reality, but we also can understand how when, when we encounter one person of the Trinity, God the Father, or God the Son, or even, the, or even God the Holy Spirit, we're really up against all three. You can't separate them. There's also the term hypostatic union. How does that fit with uh, who Christ is and who we are in him? The hypostatic union refers to the union of God with humanity in the incarnation. Uh, some people think of, of, of Jesus as being God in a man, and they, under, they, they explain the, the puzzle of the incarnation of Jesus being uh, God and man by saying, well, uh, the Spirit of God came and descended on Jesus, and, and that's the incarnation. That is not the incarnation. Um, we, we Christians uh, believe, based on Scripture, that that God dwells in us, but we're not an incarnation. We're not the incarnation. Uh, the, the incarnation was a union of the, of the person of the Word, Jesus, as we call him in, in, since his life on earth, uh, the, the union of the person of the Word with humanity. And this is, of course, an amazing idea, that God himself united himself with the human race. Now, there are some challenges to that because we don't normally think of ourselves as being um, uh, one bundle of humanity. We tend to think of, you know, I'm an individual, you're an individual, you have your problems, I have mine. We think of ourselves as independent of one another, autonomous actors. Uh, And there is a sense of individual identity and individual responsibility. But the Bible also sees this as being a part of, of one bundle of humanity, so that what, so that what, what affects one affects all. And uh, the Bible says about the sin of Adam, um, one died, therefore all died. And, and, and so when, when Christ uh, 
united himself with humanity. He didn't unite himself just with a particular man uh, who lived in Palestine long ago. He united himself with the humanity of the entire human race. That's why sometimes uh, we refer to this uh, doctrine as the all-inclusive humanity, because he includes all of us in his humanity. Uh, So that his representation of us is not just a legal one, uh, where we agree to let him represent us, perhaps, or or God agrees to treat him as if he is uh, standing in for us, but he literally includes us in himself so that what happens to him happens to us, so that he's lived our life, but we were there in him. He's died our death, but when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And so this is why Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3 and says, set your sight on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Christ died long ago, but when he died, you died. And so we're included in his humanity. So if we're, if we're already in union with Christ, he's already drawn us into himself, mm-hmm. and we're as huma- part of humanity, we're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Life is hidden with him, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, how does repentance work with that? In other words, if we're already included with Christ, where does repentance come in, and uh, what is its role in the context of that relationship? Mm-hmm. Uh, r- repentance. We're so often to think. We often think of repentance as being a, a condition of grace. And we sometimes say, you know, that person really did something mean to me, and I'm not going to forgive him unless he's sorry and unless he changes. And that's the way we're used to treating uh, other people sometimes. But the amazing news of the gospel is that God doesn't say, after you repent, after you change, then I'll forgive you. And in fact, if we could transform ourselves, if we could uh, turn over a new leaf, then Christ didn't need to come. He should have just come to earth to congratulate us. But in fact, we're not able to repent unless he comes in and transforms us. So on the one hand, Christ already lived our life. He took us up into his life. But on the other hand, we're we're now called to respond to the gospel. We're called to say yes. We're called to say, I confess Christ died for me. I confess when he died, I died. And, and, and repentance then is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of becoming who I already am in Christ. Repentance, rather than being a, a condition of grace, is a response to it. We often talk about participation in the life of Christ. How, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Participation there is, is a relational term. It's talking about living in a relationship with Christ. And uh, in, in, in the Bible, it's very interesting, at creation, um, the Bible records that God created man. Male and female created he them. In other words, Adam and Eve's being as, as humans was as a being in relation. They were created as male and female, not just as a male over here and a female over there, but as persons in relation. We're relational beings. God is a relational being. God is a God of relationships as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we're, we're invited to participate 
to live in a relationship with one who has already included us in himself in his life, death, and resurrection. We're called to say yes, we're called to believe, and yet paradoxically, our believing is a gift of God. Our believing is a sharing in the faith of Jesus. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if we, when we talk about faith being a gift of God, uh, is, it, is it a gift that he only gives to some people? Uh, not everybody believes, so mm-hmm. is it a gift he just gives to some, or is it a gift he gives to all, and they don't uh, accept the, the, the believing or the faith, or how does that work? This is, this is one, of the, one of the oldest questions that's, that the Christian church has been uh, discussing and debated, uh, debating for, for many, many centuries. Uh, and uh, uh, there are some who have, who have said, well, uh, God decide who, decides who gets the gift of faith, and, uh, and if you're predestined to believe, you'll believe, and that's that. Others have said, no, God doesn't have anything to say in it. All he does is he lays the offer out, and then we decide whether to believe or not believe. I think both of those sides have an element of truth, and they're both mistaken. I think it is true that faith is a gift of God. It's surely God's grace. It's not uh, because I was pious enough or good enough to make the right decision, make the right move, to have the right attitude to God. It's also not uh, uh, that, um, that God simply pushed certain buttons and so that certain people become Christians, certain people believe, and certain people don't. I think that, in fact... If I believe it's, it, 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 it is because um, God has granted me faith, but I do need to embrace that faith that he offers me. And there's no way around that. Uh, I, I, I think if, uh, and so if I become a Christian, it is because God, the Bible says no one come to, comes to me unless the Father draws, draws him. So if I come to faith in Christ, it's because the Father drew me. He wooed me. Uh, Augustine says God is the infallible seducer. He draws us to himself. I, I became a Christian when I was seven years old. I, I, I went forward and, and confessed Christ as my Savior. But it was the Holy Spirit who drew me to God at that time. But then what about those who don't believe? You say, well, if God gives, gives faith and other people don't believe, God must not have given them faith. I, I think at that point we have to say, no, that's not quite right. Um, the Bible has passages that, that, that make clear that there still is a responsibility to, to, uh, to, to believe, to, to say yes. Uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, when, when Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, one hand, that's complete. Grace is already there for us. We're already reconciled in that sense by what Christ has done. But then in the next verse he says, therefore, we, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So um, we are called to be reconciled. We're called, we're summoned to believe. We're summoned to say yes. We're summoned to take up our crosses and follow him. And the Bible even holds us accountable. It even says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Um, and, and he who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, and he who believes not does not have eternal life. John 3. So I, I summarize that, that question about 
how do some believe and some not, by saying that in the Bible, if I believe, blame God. If I don't believe, blame me. And again, if it looks like I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, that's simply the witness of Scripture. Some people say that it's dangerous to put too much emphasis on grace and uh, that the primary emphasis needs to be on godly living and grace is a part of that. But if you put too much emphasis on grace, then it's dangerous and you'll fall into antinomianism and there seems to be a great fear of that among some people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen talk shows where there are people representing various streams of Christianity and I've heard some say, well, if we take away hell as, as a means of scaring people mm-hmm. into doing the right thing, then, then everything they will fall apart. Yeah. Uh, we've got to have some kind of a hammer to hold over people's heads to make them behave right, as though that's the primary issue. And yeah. so you get carried away with all this grace talk, and mm-hmm. everybody's just going to run amok and do whatever's right in their own eyes. Yeah, I've 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 heard that's 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 said before, uh, and and it's and it's well meant as a as a real genuine pastoral concern that that whatever is preached uh, have a good impact on people's lives, and I, I understand that. Uh, at the same time, I I get concerned when we make pragmatic concerns our 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 primary criterion. In other words, we're looking for what works. We want to have good levers to use on people so that we can get the results we want. And so we'll preach hellfire to scare people into living the right life so that they don't do bad things. But what we do when we, when we now, of course, the Bible does speak about last judgment. It does speak about, about hell as being the destiny of those who reject Christ. But when we forever use that, that lever and say, well, you know, if you step out of line, you'll go to hell and so on, we not only are, are contradicting the gospel, which does declare that it's that it's by grace that we're saved, not by works. We're also, I think, damaging people's spiritual lives by creating a kind of a mean God who's, who's, a, who's not, not a God you'd want to draw near, but, but an angry God who with, with fierce streaks on his face, who, who, who really rather detests the individual. Um, so I, I think the pastoral consequences of that are bad. Sometimes we'll want to use levers with people uh, for, for to try to raise money for the church. And we'll say, e- either in a positive way, we'll say, if you give, uh, then God will give you even more money back. If you give 100, God will give 1,000. If you give 200, he'll give a million or so forth. Uh, and, and it seems to work because people say, well, that would be great. I've got some financial difficulty. I'll just give. Uh, but, but this makes God into more of a Coke machine than a loving father, a God who you have to make deals with, a God that you, that you have to connive with financially. But God loves to give good gifts to his children. He isn't waiting to see us. We don't have anything to offer him. He has all things already. Um, so I, I think when, when we get concerned, when we use pragmatic concerns to determine theology, we always end up damaging the people's relationship with God damaging their understanding of God. It makes them draw further from God rather than be closer to him. In the Old Testament, there are examples of where Israel disobeys and, and God sends a plague or a punishment on them and so on. How does that work with, uh, or how are we to understand that in terms of the New Testament when 
uh, we find Christ presenting God as full of grace and mercy and compassion. And so when we find something bad happening in our lives, we look back at the Old Testament and think, well, God is sending this punishment on me because I've sinned. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we to, to look at that? Well, of course, you'd get different answers if you asked uh, various people, I think. Uh, and and to, 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 to my mind, this is a, an area that we don't hear about too much nowadays. But uh, to my mind, uh, the, the Bible speaks of not a spectator God, but an active God, a God who is involved in life. And, um, and, and, the, and the Bible does say, in all things, God works for good to those who love him. So God is working in all things. And God was working in the thorn in the flesh that he sent to Paul. And, and uh, uh, the, way, um, the way that Calvin explained that, it was to say that there are, there are two causes behind things that happen. There's a divine cause, and then there, there could be what he calls a secondary cause. Some individual might go to harm someone and attack that person. Now, God didn't push a button and tell that person to go on saying, go and go and attack that person. But God is nevertheless working in that event to bring about good. He's not stumped by history. He's not stumped by what evil people try to do. And of course, the classic example of that is the cross, where it makes clear that Jesus was crucified by the set knowledge and foreknowledge and purpose of God. And yet evil men perpetrated it, and they're held accountable. God didn't push a button and tell them to murder Jesus. But God in his providence, takes the worst thing that could happen and turns it into the best thing that could happen. The execution of the innocent Son of God is turned in, into our eternal salvation. So, uh, in a very real and profound uh, sense, when, 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 when bad things happen, God is working for our good. He is. And the Bible even says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And I think we need to ask God to give us a teachable heart when we're going through a difficult time. Yes, we can ask for help, we can ask for deliverance, but we can also ask, Lord, what are you trying to show me through this? Are you working on any projects right now that are, uh, are new that we can look forward to? Um, I've been uh, uh, working on a, uh, on, on a book on our life in Christ, and that's been a, a, a tremendously exciting topic for me because all of, all, all of our lives as Christians is, is, is taken up in the life of Christ. And I want people to see what a difference that makes for their marriage, what it makes, difference it makes for their, uh, for their uh, life before God as they're trying to grow in godliness, uh, what a difference it makes for the things we're called to do as Christians, to see that in all things we're called to abide in Christ and, live, and draw the life from the life of Christ in all that we do. The, the Bible says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. And, and uh, one Christian was telling a, a friend that, that very frankly, that was his life's motto, I can do all things through Christ. And the friend looked at him, kind of scowled and says, you mean you can't do anything without Jesus? And he said, oh yeah. He says, I can go out and make a big mess of things and stumble around. He says, but if I want to do something worthwhile in life, I need to do it through Christ. So I'm working on that as a, as, as a project. A lot of people look at the, the concept of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and all as, as being from the perspective of uh, I will ask Christ to help me with everything I do. 
and um, mm-hmm. you know, help me do this, help me do that. Yeah. As long as I'm asking Christ to help me do everything, mm-hmm. then I am uh, participating with Christ. I'm uh, doing all things through Christ who strengthens me. But uh-huh. if I don't pray that and I'm not thinking about that, then I'm, I'm not living in Christ. So therefore, you need to be uh, praying that way that I'm praying. Otherwise, you're not, Christ isn't in your life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's to turn a good promise of Scripture into a formula. And I don't think that's the point. I mean, our, uh, we have died. Our, our life is hidden with Christ in God. I am included in Christ, and I can't, I can't uh, extract myself from that union. I, I am intertwined with the life of Christ in my life. And that's the foundation of our hope, isn't it? And yes. Because yeah. if, it, if it at any point rested on how well we do something, and wasn't entirely by the grace of God, what he's already done and made of us in Christ, then that's the exact point where we'll fall short and it'll all fall apart. I think, I think that that's right. And, and, and I also think that we need to be careful that we don't sort of bring in Jesus as a means to our ends. You know, I'm going to ask, you know, I can do all things through Christ, so I'm going to ask Jesus to help me uh, with this particular plan of mine or this particular project. We need to to open ourselves to the Lord and ask, what are you trying to do in my life? And then, and then, and then depend upon him to help us accomplish his purposes. Yeah. It's like praying, Lord, please let the Cubs win. Please. Let oh, yes, exactly. Let me get a home run, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let the slot machine hit the jackpot. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, as we uh, finish up, what is something that you would most want people to know about God? I would want them to know that in Christ, God is closer to them than the very air they breathe. And that God loves you tenderly, unconditionally, and, and he is ready right now, right where you are, to, to, to take you to a new level in your life. He's already forgiven you. He invites you to trust in his forgiveness. He's al- already uh, secured for you a place in heaven Believe it. Live your life out of Christ, and and spend your 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 journey with Jesus in joy and in trust, knowing that God will never ever let you down. That it makes me have to ask this: What if I'm a rat? How how do I how do I cope with my ratness in light of what you just said? Yeah. Well, I'd say if you're a, if you're a rat, you're a part of a rat race. <laughs> <laughs> Because, because in, in, in fact, all of us have some rattiness uh, to us. Uh, Cromwell once was, was having someone painting a picture and was painting a rather idealized portrait, and Cromwell stopped the artist and said, paint me warts and all. Well, the Bible paints us warts and all. God knows those flaws. He knows flaws that you and I have that we don't even realize, and he still cherishes us. He still loves us dearly. Just like a, a loving father carries a picture of, of his son in his wallet, God, God, as it were, carries a picture of us in his wallet. And he knows all about those flaws, and he still loves us and cherishes us infinitely. And that's what makes the gospel good news. That's why it's good news. Not the hope that maybe someday I'll measure up to some kind of perfection, right? but the fact of what Christ has already done. You're, you're already lovable, and he wants to transform you into the image of Christ and if it takes a thousand years, that's just fine. And when he's 
through transforming you into the image of Christ, Christian, He won't love you any more than He does right now. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.